Uh, we read earlier from Luke chapter 6. If you're using the church Bibles, page 862, Luke chapter 6. We're in a series in Luke's Gospel. We're following the Saviour through Luke's Gospel. We're looking at the one who fulfills all things. In our discipleship groups, we study a passage, and then in our preaching, we study the next passage. In our discipleship groups, it's a passage after, so we're following in that pattern. And here we are in Luke 6, verses 12 following. Let's pray for God to help us. Lord, we come to listen. And so we ask, teach us again about your love and about how the gospel changes everything about our life. We ask for this grace in the name of Christ. Amen. We're seeing in Luke's gospel this morning that Jesus has come not just to save us from our sins, but to gather us into a new family. This is a really important theme for us to see. Um, It's all what the gospel is doing. The gospel is saving people, but also gathering people. One of the most helpful little verses I give to people, if you want a summary verse for the gospel, is uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. And I want you to hear the plurality in this verse. We've said it before, I know many times we say it in this church, the gospel saves us and gathers us, but just listen to the us moment. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ suffered once for sins, so He's saved us from our sins by His death on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, so He is the righteous, we are the unrighteous, He takes our place, that He might bring us to God. being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. It includes the death and resurrection. It includes the declaration that Christ died for our sins, rose for our hope, but He did it for us, to bring us to God. Not just you, not just me. Western Christianity has so easily turned Christianity into an individual enterprise. It's just about me. Almost at the, well, the others are annoying, but at the exclusion of others. The Christ did not come just to save you. And I hope that's not bursting your bubble. I hope that's something you celebrate. He did not come just to save you. He came to save us. He came to save a church, a gathering, a family. We all have different family backgrounds here in this church. And the more, if you get to know people from the nations, the nations have very different family backgrounds. We want to be a church that is for the nations because the nations are coming to Bendigo and all of us have a variety of different family backgrounds. Stable, unstable, hurting or helpful. Perhaps loving and kind or perhaps a life we'd like to leave behind. But whatever our background What we see Jesus doing here, He is creating a new family. And we see in chapter 6, verse 12, we read it earlier, but the context of verse 12 is, of course, verse 11. You see, Jesus has come and His own people, the leaders who typify His people, yes, there's a crowd following Him, but the leaders 
are kind of a temperature check on the reception of Jesus into Israel. And when Jesus on the Sabbath in a synagogue would rather help people and heal people, you know, have all the ministry conversations you don't want to have. People say, don't talk to me on a Sunday. Why, why not? This is family conversation, family business. How are you? It's Sunday. It's the gathering of the church. I would like to talk with you on Sunday about how you are. Jesus does that. On sun, on Sabbath, for their Sabbath Saturday, he actually heals people, ministers to people. That's what the Sabbath is for. We saw this in our discipleship groups. The Sabbath is for ministering to people now. And Jesus does that to the response of the leaders, and they're so irate. In fact, look at verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11. After Jesus heals a man with a withered hand, what do the religious leaders do? They're saying, Jesus, you can't do stuff on, a, on, a, on the Sabbath, right? But look at verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus, you can't do any good on the Sabbath. You can't do any works, but we will do some stuff. We'll, we'll get a, a meeting together and we'll work out what we'll do to you. And this is the beginning of the rejection of Jesus by those who should be receiving him. Those who ought to be waiting for him, who would have sung Psalm 126, who would know that though they sow in tears, they're oppressed by the Romans. Israel has had a history of sin and exile and God's judgment. And yet, through all the prophets, there has been this hope of salvation, of rescue, that they would once, having sown in tears, would laugh. And now the one who comes to make us laugh is here. He loves us and they reject him. They want to destroy him. Mark's gospel tells us of this same scene. So what does Jesus do? Verse 12, he goes up on a mountain to pray. You'll notice in Luke's gospel, every time there's a significant event happening, Jesus goes up to pray. He takes time away from the crowds, from the people, and he prays. And he goes and prays and he comes back and he enacts the new plan. He calls 12. He gets all the disciples, verse 13, but he chooses 12. Now, that is hugely significant here. He doesn't choose 12 because, you know, leadership gurus say a committee of eight is good, but if you want a real board, you need 12. He chooses 12 because these are the new leaders of Israel, the new Israel. He chooses 12 new heads of tribes, 12 apostles. The Greek word apostolos means sent one. He's choosing 12 sent ones with a particular task and purpose to be the new leaders. The reason we have a New Testament is because of the apostles, the eyewitnesses, those who are sent with the authority to write down God's word, with the authority to proclaim it and preach it. Jesus is creating a new family. But of course, it's not just for the twelve, because now Jesus gathers all the disciples and having come down from the mountain in Luke's gospel, do you notice what he does? Verse 20, he now preaches on the plain. Lots of scholars talk about this particular passage. We're about to be in Jesus' major sermon in Luke's gospel. We've already seen a sermon in chapter 4 where Tom Pike preached, but now we see the major sermon. And people say, well, is this the Sermon on the Mount? Because Matthew's Gospel got the major sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Is this the Sermon on the Mount? It's tricky because it's the Sermon on the Plain. It's not on a mountain. In fact, um, 
I'm going to put all my uh, lot in and say, this is actually a different sermon. Jesus here preaches on the plain, in Matthew he preaches on the mountain, and yes, it has similar material, sometimes a bit different. But let me tell you as a preacher, a lot of our preaching is very similar. Yes, it's different, but it's no surprise to us and scholars who want to pull apart the, the perhaps the legitimacy of the Bible here, it is no surprise to us that Jesus would preach in two different places and use some similar material. Because what is Jesus doing throughout Luke's Gospel? He's preaching the kingdom of the Gospel of... He's preaching the kingdom of the Gospel of God. He's preaching this same Gospel, same material. Yes, it's a bit different, but here we have Jesus in Luke's Gospel. He's gathering us and He's teaching us. How will listening to Jesus shape your life? How will listening to Him in this moment shape your life? You'll see the picture on the front of your service sheet there. Um, that picture shows us what we're often doing when we're listening, doesn't it? Earphones in, screen there, zero distractions, totally focused. Could we give Jesus that moment? Could we listen to Him? As Jesus preaches, and He is the best preacher, He is the best preacher, our excellence, as he preaches, it's totally reasonable that we would listen. He goes through what we, we know of, I guess, as the Beatitudes, the, the scholars put that, the, the translators put that in your Bibles. But it's basically, to start his sermon, he gets our attention by saying, here are two ways to live. Here are some blessings and here are some worries or woes. And first we see those familiar blessings, don't we? Verse 20, you're poor now. You're poor now. Well, you're blessed. For you will inherit the kingdom of God. You know what it's like to go into a wealthy person's place and see all they've got and, 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 and see what they trust in, perhaps? Don't worry. You're blessed. You're hungry now. Perhaps you're worse than just poor, as in, you know, Australia poor. We do have real poor, but you're in poverty. You're like, you're real hunger. You'll be satisfied. Perhaps you weep now. Like Psalm 126, you shall laugh. And even more so, perhaps you are poor, hungry, and you're weeping, which is, for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, a real state. But then it gets worse. But perhaps now, verse 22, people even hate you. And they take joy in telling you that. When you're hated, when you're excluded, when you're reviled, when people speak evil of you, you can rejoice. Now let me tell you, my first response to that is I don't feel like it. When people speak ill of me, I don't feel like saying, yes, I rejoice. When I hear that phrase that comes my direction, people are saying, people are saying this about you, I don't go, wonderful. When I hear people speaking ill of me or they want to tell me what they think of me, I don't go, thank you. 
So Jesus, where can I rejoice? I can rejoice for two reasons Jesus gives. One, remember for us, remember Reforming Church, they did this to the prophets. This is not new. This is not just about you, Russ. This is not new. They did this to the prophets. And secondly, remember, Russ, your reward is great in heaven. The life of discipleship, of being a learner, that's what a disciple means, is to be a learner, to be a listener to Jesus, to be well taught, shapes our life. Belief shapes behaviour. Do we believe that we will inherit the kingdom of God? Yes, we may weep, but we can weep with rejoicing. It doesn't mean we walk around with an inane smile on our face, but it does mean deep down we can say, this will not last, because the kingdom of God lasts forever. And notice, just in case you're needing to notice, notice if you're not the one who is blessed and can rejoice. Now, perhaps you're someone listening in and perhaps you're here or online and you're thinking, well, this Christianity stuff, no, not for me. In fact, Jesus, poof, what a fool. And those Christians, idiots. Just for a moment, listen to Jesus. He says, verse 24, woe to you. In other words, you ought to be worried, actually, if you're rich. It's the opposite of rich people thinking, isn't it, though? What do rich people think? The rich people think, I have more money, more security, I build bigger, I have better, I have more stocks, more securities, I don't need to worry anymore. In fact, Jesus in Luke's Gospel, we'll see coming up, has a parable about this, about a rich farmer, which we could say, well, isn't that a bit of a, an irony, a rich farmer today? Well, no, there are rich farmers, there are rich people, even in our society. Even when stock markets go down, we still have wealth in abundance and we tend to have the heart problem of trusting in it. And Jesus says, you ought to be worried, rich people. Because if you trust in your riches, Jesus says, you've already received your consolation. When death comes to your door, go and hug your money. When cancer comes, can you buy off death? Can you pay it off? Can you care for someone in grief by giving them more money? I have friends that received compensation that didn't change their grief. If you seek wealth in this life and get it, Jesus teaches us, you got what you wanted, it'll never satisfy you. Jesus says to your life of following him is not one of taking comfort in wealth where you can't get comfort. And don't take comfort in people speaking well of you, by the way, either. If people just speak well of you, and, and, and perhaps for us as Christians, a temptation is just to look for that, isn't it? Just to look for that. Just to have people around me that only speak well of me. The great temptation is that, Jesus says, they fluff the feathers of the false prophets in the past too. Just to make sure they're not speaking well of you because you're speaking falsely is not a good thing, not a good way to live. And Jesus continues his blessings and woes. He sets us up and he gives us that contrast. There are only two ways to live. He gives us that contrast and he says, this is what discipleship now looks like in the community. 
For us as a church, we need to keep hearing this. You look at that section where Jesus speaks about verse 27 following, loving your enemies. We're seven years old. I've lost count of the amount of times we've been in a passage like this where we're teaching about love your enemies at a time when we're feeling it, right? The state has got legislation in and we know it's particularly pointed towards Christians where, where we see the pressure of those around us that perhaps want to speak ill of us and, and, and we feel that, right? And our response is to actually love our enemies. This is so countercultural, of course, in our society, isn't it? But what's sadder is Jesus has to say it on repeat in this passage. The amount of times he says, love your enemies in this passage, just, it's just on repeat, like a good preacher, repeating it again and again and again. Why does he need to repeat it? Because we don't hear it, we don't listen, and we don't love. Let me tell you, it's easy, isn't it? By my own experience, it's so easy for me to love someone who loves me. That's easy. Anyone can do that. Anyone. But real love is not that. That's got some like in it. It's got some aspect of, well, I love you because you're just lovely and, you know, I just... But real love is deeper than that. Real love says, I lay my life down for you. I go low and low and low. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. It's for our listening, it's for our discipleship, it's for our love. So let's just love, yeah? Why don't we? I think it's because what Jesus goes with next is because we don't see where the power is. See, if we just hear the command, the imperative to love, and we try with our willpower to love, it doesn't work, and we say, that didn't work very well, and I I won't do that again. The only way we can keep loving our enemies when it's hard, and let me tell you, you know it's hard, don't you? I know it's hard, I feel this. The only way I can possibly keep loving them is not because I'm a good lover. It's not because I'm good at laying my life down. Naturally, I'm not. My natural-born instinct is to not. It's to flee, escape, run, go, even perhaps fight back. It's the fight-or-flight syndrome, isn't it? That's exactly my response as a human being. I cannot, just by learning some stuff, be more skilled at loving my enemies. I need power to do that, power beyond me. And that's what Jesus gives us. He shows us in verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. Conjunction, connecting word, for. How, Jesus? For. Connecting word, for. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You see? The way in which we can love our enemies is because He loves His enemies. Romans Chapter 5, Christ died for us when we were God's enemies. He loves his enemies. He lays his life down. It's the cross. The cross is the power that enables us to do this. Keep looking to the cross. When it's hard to love our enemies, when we feel like, I want those blessings and I'm waiting for the kingdom of God and those woes, give those woes to the bad people out there and I'm just going to wait it out to the kingdom of God and do nothing. No, 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 no. You can do everything. You can love them. How? Look to the cross. The cross of Christ is God's love for you when you were his enemy. And this shapes, verse 37 following, discipleship in the church. This shapes our discipleship in the church. 
You see, when it comes to the community, I think we feel easily like, yeah, I can call that out, that's bad, that's evil. And we feel very comfortable doing that. We feel very comfortable showing other people their faults. That's clear, isn't it? You know, the government shouldn't do that, or, or the nation shouldn't do that, or that, that, that perpetrator of that crime shouldn't do that. That's very clear cut. That's wrong, that's evil. But then we take that level of judgment and we move it into the church and we start calling other people out on their sins, on their things, with the same tone. Jesus has to speak to us about discipleship in the church. And when it comes to discipleship in the church in this passage, he speaks particularly about judgment. Now, judgment is often confused in the church today. It's become a buzzword. A buzzword becomes, in our day and age, a banned activity. So you can't speak about judgment. We know it's hard to speak about judgment in our world, judgment for sin, but then it's even harder to speak about, well, judgment, even discernment in the church. But we actually need that. And that really is a sermon for another day, but go to 1 Corinthians 5 and you'll see why. But here, Jesus is talking about a judgment that is not linked to discernment. It is not linked to church discipline. It is not linked to 1 Corinthians 5. It is not linked to love. It's the kind of judgment that in fact is unloving. It's the kind of judgment we know happens in churches, we know could happen here. And so we see Jesus speak about this. Verse 38, the end there, he says, you know, given what will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. Here we go, the end of verse 38. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is a warning. The way you speak to people or about people, the way you make judgment on other people's history or present or future or character or on their life, the way you judge people on their life will be measured to you. So the way that you approach someone and you treat them and say, well, that's how I'm going to treat you and that's what I assume about you, not knowing all the details, the way I do that with, with making a false judgment, not a clear discerning case, a false the way I do that, be careful because that will be measured to you. And Jesus shows how this works for us by giving us a parable. That's why today's sermon brought to you with very little illustrations, really, because Jesus gives them all. He's got the best ones. He's the best preacher, after all. Jesus helps us with a parable, and the world has taken this one up. I hear people in the world using this all the time. The blind leading the blind. Jesus takes up a parable which probably was used in his time of day, because we know it's proverbial, isn't it? It's wisdom. It's just, you can't have a blind person leading a blind person. It doesn't work. Secondly, a disciple is not above their teacher. When you train someone, when you disciple someone to live for Jesus, bear in mind, the way, the methods you do that, that will mean that they will become like you. Our little disciples up there in kids' church are watching all the time about how people, the grown-ups in our church, live for Jesus. The way they see your attitudes to Jesus and his church, 
they hear it like 10 times in volume. And they pick it up and they repeat it and they live it out. A disciple is not above his teacher. And then lastly, Jesus gives us that illustration which is just an exercise in speck and log. Jesus says to us, verse 41, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, you take that speck out of your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? And here is Jesus' really cutting word. This is the word he reserves for those who are against the gospel. Against him he says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. A speck is so small, isn't it? We've all probably had a speck in our eye of something. In the summer or the spring, it's a mosquito. Well, it's a, a little bug. Maybe not a mosquito, that's quite big, isn't it? A beetle in your eye is another issue. But a speck, a little tiny speck, it's just so bothersome, isn't it? It's just a little bother. And sometimes that's the way we treat other people and their yeah, their sins and their failures, it's just a little bother. It gets so bothersome to me that I just want to go over there and take that out. Now, there's a good thing about that. We actually ought to help one another, confess our sins to one another. That's something right about that. But here Jesus got a point. You might have a log in your eye. What do logs do in our eyes? Well, logs stick out. A speck is kind of stuck on the surface. A log sticks out. A log blinds us. We actually can't see. A speck I can still kind of see a bit, can't I? A log totally can't see. And secondly, a log keeps everyone else at a distance. So I actually can't even get close to you to help you with your speck because my log is stopping everything happening. What's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is, do you reckon, do you reckon it's possible? If you examine yourself, do you reckon it's possible that you're a sinner too? Do you reckon it's possible that you could see yourself as a sinner first before you go and find the other sinner and help them? One of my favourite psalms is Psalm 51. Psalm 32 is kind of, a, kind of a second passage like it. It's where David confesses his sin. He's a guy who's been an adulterer and a murderer. And then he says, and once I confess my sin and I know your forgiveness, then I will teach transgressors your ways. He's not saying, yeah, they're not going to tell people, hey, stop sinning, you know, idiot. He's not saying that. He's saying, if you know what it is to be forgiven, if you know what it is to say, I'm a sinner and forgiven, then when you go to someone else, you'll actually be caring and kind and gracious and helpful. You'll actually be able to say, yeah, I had this log, right? It's awful. Let me help you with your little speck because I needed help with the log. Self-righteousness kills relationships and it kills relationships with God most of all. In fact, Jesus says to self-righteous people all the time in the gospel, hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. Be a helper by saying, I'm a sinner. And I'm a sinner helping another sinner. You see, what Jesus is teaching us here is we need to hear for a heart change. It's not just taking a log, it begins with a heart examination. Jesus gives us in verse 43 to the end now, he gives us this great horticultural lesson about fruit trees. This happens to me all the time in our church family. Uh, We've had lots of social events recently and there's been 
all these different foods from the nations displayed and eaten and enjoyed. We've had fruit and vegetables. And um, Amy knows this about me, and let me tell you, every time I see a fruit like beyond an orange or a lemon and a banana, I have trouble recognizing what that fruit is, right? So I say, oh, what's this? Is this a, uh, a plum? Uh, that's a grape. Okay, uh, it's not that bad, but people say, don't you have an agricultural degree? Yes, not a horticultural degree. Jesus gives us, though, a basic lesson that even ag students can get about fruit trees. I get this. It's simple, isn't it? When Jesus speaks about fruit and the tree, verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, no, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. It's simple, isn't it? It's what's at the heart of the tree will bear the fruit on that tree. Same with your life. You can tell how someone's life is going by the fruit they're bearing. Our inner being, our drive shaft, our motivations, whatever you want to use to illustrate it, the scent of our affections, the seat of our affections, that place where our loves are at, our heart, Jesus often calls it. Because of the sin in our hearts, verse 45, because of the sin in our hearts, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Because of the sin of our hearts, end of verse 45, again, connecting word four, here it is. Because of the sin of our hearts, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can tell a person's heart by the words flowing out of their mouth. Jesus even says, verse 46, But you might say with your words, verse 46, I use Lord, Lord all the time. Lord, Lord. Like, I'm using all the right words, Jesus. I'm calling you Lord. I'm doing the right means. I'm saying the right things. I'm turning up. I'm doing my bit. I'm using all the right language. But Jesus says, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. There'll be other words too. His brother James, Jesus' earthly brother James, writes his book, A Spring Can't Produce Salt Water and Fresh Water. And he uses that kind of tree illustration as well. Your heart, because of sin's effect on the heart, changes the way we speak, it changes how we live, it changes what we believe. And Jesus is now saying, verse 46, you can call Jesus Lord, but... But if you're going to listen to Jesus who loves you, it's to listen to him and actually do his word. Respond to him. Listening to the one who loves us is responding to him. Verse 47, Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show what he is like. Here's the kids' talk illustration. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundations on the rock, and when the flood rose, a stream broke against the house, could not shake it because it had been well built. That is an illustration of your life. We all have floodwaters, streams breaking against us. We all have things happening in our life. And for many of us, I think like Psalm 126, this is me, right? I cry out, I'm weeping now. I weep now. When? When will I laugh? 
Like I laugh through tears. When will I laugh without the tears, without the weeping? When the kingdom of God comes, well, come Lord Jesus, because I've had enough of the weeping. But even as we weep, as the floodwaters come, as they rise, as the stream breaks against the house, even as we weep in that house, we don't need to fall because Jesus holds us up with his promises, with his word. For the one who spoke life into existence is speaking to you now. And he's speaking for your life. He's speaking for you to stay afloat, to stay up, to stay on him, to stay trusting in him. He is saying to you now, trust me. Trust me. When the floodwaters rise, will you trust me? How will listening to Jesus shape your life? Your life may not be a bed of roses right now. Your life may not be laughing right now. It may be weeping with no end in sight. But how will your life be shaped? You can trust Him. You can trust Him. And here where it comes the us, we can trust Him. Jesus does not give us the purpose of discipleship as to follow him from a distance, but now it is up close and personal, trusting in him. Listening to someone's a personal activity. You need to focus and respond, even in some small way. And for Jesus to respond to him is to trust him at his word. That is where it starts to do his word, to trust him at his word. What is the fault, the failing in the garden at the fall? Here is God's word. Trust me. And what is our fault? We don't. We trust the voice of a serpent. We trust the voice of another. We do not trust the one who loves us at his word. And Jesus has come to form a new Israel, a new family. And he is saying, trust me at my word. Build your life on my word. Listen to the one who loves you. And verse 47 is this key verse. Verse 47 is this key verse. It sums it up for us. In fact, in verse 47, I want you to know it's got three verbs in it. Three doing words. You know, when to do Jesus' word, three doing things. This is how we do his word. Verse 47, firstly, everyone who comes to me. The first thing you need to do this morning is, if you have not yet come to Jesus, in whatever's happening in your life, now come to him. Come to him. There's a welcome card. We just, that's one little step. It's our, it's our imperfect church's way of saying, if you're not sure what to do next, just in your weeping and weakness, fill it out and say, I don't know what to do next, but I need to come to Jesus. Just do that. And we're going to help you. We'll take some logs out of our own eyes and we'll come on over and say, here's my log. Here's how I can help you because we're reforming church here. We're not perfect church. Come to Jesus. Come to him. Hear him. That's the second thing. The second verb is, hear my words. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, I made a bit of a point of saying, I get we're in a screen culture. I'm nothing against screens. They've enriched our lives in many ways. You'll see in the front of your service sheet, listening to Jesus, picture of a person on their phone, it plugs in, it's fine. I use a tablet to write down prayer points and Bible study notes and all sorts of stuff. But I really think there's value in a paper Bible. Why? Because a paper Bible doesn't have a notification saying, bing! Someone else wants to talk to you right now. I mean, 
I'm not, I'm not going, I don't feel strongly about this. I just think, Jesus' second point, hear my words, listen to him. He wants to speak to you. He wants you to come to him. He wants to speak to you through his word. And if I know if I've got a paper Bible, it means I'm not going, hang on, Jesus, I'm listening to you, but I just, I just need to go to Facebook right now. Hang on, Jesus, I'm listening to you. I just need to go over here to this Instagram picture that looks... Yeah. No, 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 just for a moment, listen to him. Just listen to him. And then trust him. Do his will. Why? Because he loves you. This is what the life of discipleship looks like. But notice this only happens not because you do these things to get his love. It only happens because he's done something for you. He's the one who loves you. He is the one who died for your sins and rose for your hope to bring us to God. And that means that doing his will, believing his word, it doesn't get us his love. It doesn't keep us with his love. It's it's how we enjoy his love. It's how we enjoy listening to the one who loves us. And this is us. This is our church. Our sound system failed this morning. Not the sound technicians. They did a great job. But let me tell you, I failed this morning and yesterday and the day before that. We haven't got all day. But let me be honest with you, I've got some logs. We all have logs. Some of us have specs. But we can all listen to the one who loves us because he went to two logs put together on a hill and died for our sins. Listen to the one who loves you. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask, bless us as those who are blessed because we listen to Jesus. Show our world the woes Jesus warns us. Show the world the worries that would come unless they go to trust in Jesus and be safe in him. Move us that we would love our enemies in our community. Move us to remove logs from our eyes in loving our church. Grow us in the fruit of abiding in Jesus that we would speak with an overflow of love. And as we listen to Jesus, we're asking now, please shape us as a church, reform us, that we would be like this man, like this woman, the one who builds their life on Jesus. We pray in his firm and strong foundation of a name, in Jesus' name. Amen.